0: 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, then 17 through 19. I am not sure we're going to get through all that, but um, that's how I have it broken down here. So, 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10, then 17 through 19. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants... And urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. Verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Lord, we request your aid in hearing these words and thinking through these words and having these words become a part of our life. We pray that as we study this text with these very serious topics, that you would help us to be wise and discerning and Thinking about how you would have us to apply these principles to our lives and our daily routine, and all of this for your glory and your great namesake, Jesus. In your name, amen. In this section, and if I'm honest, I think that most of the practical sections of scripture have an underlying presupposition of functioning in the two kingdoms. And this theology, we would, in a modern day, a modern vernacular, theologically called two-kingdom theology. It wasn't always labeled so. But as you go back through church history, and I would even argue through scripture, and we'll look at some passages here, that we find this principle of the two kingdoms existing, uh, not in harmony with one another, but in fact at war with one another. And all those who live in two different kingdoms have to have principles and have to have a theology that leads and guides us to navigate the waters, navigate the path between the two kingdoms. Now... Most people don't understand that they live in two different kingdoms. They just see themselves living in the one kingdom, namely the kingdom of this world. The Bible says over and over repeatedly that we are at war with the world and the world is at war with us. We find in the book of 1 John that John teaches that there are three things that are In the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that the following of those three areas and those three principles leads a person down the single kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world, of this age, of this time, versus the kingdom of God. Now, when God put Adam and Eve in that Garden of Eden in the very beginning... There was not two distinct kingdoms. It was all one kingdom. It was all God's kingdom. Now, don't hear me saying that this world still isn't God's, and now he's fighting to get it back or something like that. Um, But hear this. First of all, there is in the beginning, everything is God's. He is ruling, reigning as one who walks side by side with people. There is a relationship there that exists, an intimacy that has not existed since the Garden of Eden. But one day in the future will be again. We look to the book of Revelation and there at the very end we find that the great promise of that book is given to us in chapters 21 and 22. That says I will be your God, you will be my people and I will dwell with you. Right now, the distinction of the two kingdoms is the dwelling of God. He is not here currently dwelling with men the way he did in the Garden of Eden and the way he will one day in the new heavens and new earth. We find Jesus even teaching us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the implication of that prayer is, of course, that his will isn't being done in this kingdom. And so we're praying for the kingdom, God's kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, that which we are a citizen of as believers, to come to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think it's very easy to just simply, I mean, I could pull up my Twitter thing right now, and I could show you the very last post that I posted, and you can clearly see God's will is not being done here on earth. But as we live and move, we live in this kingdom as Christians, the kingdom of this world. It's hostile towards us, but yet we are still called to take dominion. We don't think we're going to usher in that kingdom. Christ is going to come at the right time, but we certainly pray that the kingdom would come quickly. But we live here, and we live here and now, so how do we function in this? We look back and we see, well, how did people in biblical times do it? Abraham is a good example, right? A man of much wealth, a man of many possessions, but yet he was able to live with the possessions of this kingdom and do so in such a way that he was looking to God and looking to that kingdom to give him guidance and leading here in this one. A great illustration of that would be the dispersing of Lot's family and Abraham's family. And the conflict that came between those two. Abraham looked to the Lord and trusted the Lord that God would guide him and that he would honor him in his kingdom. And Lot was looking to the kingdoms of this world. That's why he looked to settle in the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because it was going to profit him. Rather than, how can I best glorify God with my possessions? You see, there we see the two kingdom mentality actually taking place. And even though we find in Second Peter, Lot is called a Christian, or maybe a believer is probably a better phrase, not necessarily a Christian. He certainly struggled with the lust of this world and the things that come along with living in this kingdom. We can see it also in the two kings of Saul and David, right? We see Saul living for himself and living for his own personal advancement. In the beginning, he looked really good. He looked like a guy who wanted to do what the Lord wanted him to do. But then as he gained power and authority, what was really in his heart became evident. And it was shown that he was of this world. And David, though, was a man who was after God's own heart who looked to the Lord. And so even though both of those men sinned greatly in absolutely horrific ways, horrendous ways, we can still see that one served this kingdom and one followed the kingdom of God. In Jesus' life, when he is there being tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4... One of the things that Satan does to tempt Christ is to take him and show him all of the kingdoms of this world. And he says to Jesus, all of this I will give you if you bow down and you worship me. There's the battle of the two kingdoms. If there ever is any place in scripture where that battle is on display, I can't think of a greater place than Matthew chapter 4. Where this kingdom is saying to the other kingdom, worship me and you can have all of this. And of course, you know Jesus' response. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and your God alone. You don't worship this world or the things of this world. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and all of the things that exalt itself against the kingdom of God. Satan's rule and reign is here in this world. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. We are children of disobedience who follow after the will of the ruler of this world, Satan himself. We have these two distinct kingdoms. As we read through this text here... I think it's easy to see how you can... Paul is giving principles for living in this kingdom. He's giving heavenly kingdom principles for living in the earthly kingdom world. How do we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ... How do we function? How do we live as people who have to day in and day out... Because we're stuck in these bodies... Gravity sticks us to this spinning rock in space. How do we live and move and have our being here while at the same time being citizens of a completely different and holy kingdom? So, That's where we're at right now, and I bring all of this up and I make this point because the very first issue that we're going to tackle here is one that is extremely touchy, especially right now in certain Christian circles, and it's the issue of slavery. The only way to make sense of this is to allow Scripture to speak and to allow it to speak in a way that leads us into this two-kingdom kind of living. Over-realized eschatology means that we're going to try to see a pure equality, a one-to-one in every individual person, this side of heaven, that the Bible doesn't teach is going to be on this side of heaven, but rather in the kingdom to come. And so there are a lot of people who because they see, well, now there's no more slave, there's no more, they're, they're slave or free, there's men, no more men, no more female, no more all of this. We're all one. And so every effort is made to just absolutely tear down all of the structures that exist in place. And we find that we can't do that in scripture because that's not going to happen here in this kingdom. It's only going to happen in the kingdom to come. Well, there's also an under-realized, one that just minimizes, you know, it says, oh, all the differences and an overemphasis on those differences. Those differences are vital. It, it, it's my very identity is this difference. And so even though I'm in Christ and I'm one with him, and I'm one with my brother and sister, I have to, out of this sense of obligation or out of this sense of whatever, maintain this identity so much that I don't allow there to be this union and cooperation. You see, the two kingdoms spreads those two errors to the distance, outside, to the side, and allows God's rule and God's reign in the hearts and lives of his people to flourish. To do good, to bring health and vitality to the church. And so as we go through this, not only is the slavery issue, but the wealth issue that we'll get to uh, maybe this week, probably not now. But the wealth issue itself too is also something that we're going to see. The two kingdoms gives us an understanding in how we navigate these waters. So, verse 1. and beloved, teach and urge these things. Now, we might say right off the bat, well, is slavery sin? Is it wrong to have slaves? We can go back in the pages of Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, and find laws about slavery and about owning slaves. So the question, well, it doesn't look like, I mean, it's back even in the Holiness Code sections of Scripture that even slavery is condoned. We go all through the pages of the Old Testament and slavery keeps popping up and rearing its head. We find in the New Testament, in the lives of Jesus, Jesus works with certain slaves in certain areas and heals some and does work with some. Paul encounters slaves Pretty regularly, it seems like, in his missionary travels and journeys. In fact, we probably have a couple of the books of the Bible written by a slave, Luke. He would have been a slave as a doctor. Um, we don't know all the details about that, but he certainly would have been employed in that kind of capacity to someone. The interesting thing, even in ancient history here, we find that sometimes even slaves own slaves. It was not uncommon. It was not thought of in the same way we think of it today. Yes, Revelation 18 says that it's a wicked and abominable practice. It's one that when the fall of Babylon happens there in Revelation 18, it is praised that the slave masters and the people who kidnap other people are fallen along with Babylon. So it's something that we can celebrate and be glad that we don't have here in our nation anymore. But let's not get anachronistic and read our own modern sensibilities back into history. Let's try to see what scripture is saying and then from there get some principles that apply to us here today. First of all, yoke bond servants, its slave... Let's uh, let's not minimize it. Certainly there was bond servitude, meaning that I, for a time, sold myself into slavery either to um, pay off a debt or to um, gain money financially for some reason, for some profit, maybe for my family, maybe for some other reason. Um, But there certainly was that kind of indentured servitude. But the slavery here is also you were defeated in war and so therefore your nation was brought into another nation and you were made a slave there was the practice of man-stealing which is the american form of slavery although not as prolific as it was in our day because we didn't have nations conquering other nations america wasn't going out conquering other nations and making slaves of the entire nation instead we employed people to go and to kidnap people and bring them into Our land and make them slaves here. So, all those who are a slave, regard your own masters as worthy of all honor. First thing that is unstated but screams at us is he doesn't talk about freedom. He doesn't bring it up. He doesn't advocate for it. He doesn't try to say, we need to raise some kind of armed rebellion. Hey, there's in the Roman society for every three people, one of them was a slave, probably. Maybe even every two in some things that I've read. Anyways there's a lot of slaves in that society and if there are so many they could easily arm themselves in revolt you'd think and take over and certainly with Christ as the head and the banner of Christianity it's certainly something that could have been accomplished but we don't find that actually taking place here in scripture or in church history. So instead what we see is that Slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of honor. There is a place in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches." Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Well, don't remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave, a bondservant, when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price don't become bondservants of men. So brothers in whatever condition each of you were called, let him remain with God. And here Paul, he clearly is laying out this idea that we live in two different kingdoms. No matter, You're a slave to Christ, right? And he's using that as the reason why. Slavery is not something that he's saying needs to be abolished. But in this world, in this kingdom, if you living in this kingdom have the opportunity to avail yourself of liberty uh, to gain your freedom, then do it. Then absolutely. If you're raising money or you have a master who is giving you extra money for extra things on top of it and you end up being able to purchase your freedom or work for your freedom, then absolutely do it. However, what are we to strive for? We are to strive for serving Christ and loving Christ and identifying with Christ. Not letting, that king, not letting this kingdom override what we believe and the way we follow God in the other kingdom. So, as a slave, how should I be? I should follow God. The Lord, in serving my master, well, in fact, He goes so far as to say, if you're a slave and you get saved, don't be concerned about it. <laughs> wow, don't be concerned about it. Because in Christ we're free, and those who are free in Christ they are slaves. If we're to regard our own masters as worthy of all honor as a slave, then that means that I'm to do as best as I can. What I'm to do is I'm to consider the master that I'm serving to be the Lord, and I'm to serve him the way I would if the Lord Jesus Christ were the one who is here right now and whom I should be serving. Now, he says here, here's why. In First Timothy 6.1, the reason why people are to serve in such a way is twofold. So that the name of God and the teaching of God may not be reviled. First of all, the name of God. Living in two kingdoms means that what we are most focused on here in this kingdom of the world is glorifying and worshiping the God we live under in the other kingdom. And so we need to live lives that glorify Him in this kingdom, not live lives in this kingdom that bring shame on the name of Christ. Make people look down on God or make people revile God. I mean, they already have a hatred of God in their hearts. We know that. We understand that. But we're to live lives, like he said in chapter 2, that are quiet, that are peaceable, lives that don't necessarily attract attention to ourselves, but rather attract attention to the Lord. A rebellious and disobedient slave doesn't draw attention favorably to God. A rebellious and disobedient slave draws attention to the fact that I hate my master and I hate being a slave and I, 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 I. It draws attention to the person. It draws attention to the circumstances and the situation, not to the Lord. When we find Joshua serving as a slave in, pardon me, Joseph serving as a slave In Genesis, he did so in such a way that he was elevated to the leadership of the household. He was elevated to one of the heads of the prison that he was actually interred in. We find him being raised up because he was constantly serving the Lord and seeking the Lord's glory in his service, even while he was under the yoke of slavery. Because he wanted to worship and glorify God, he was worshiping God in that kingdom as he lived in this kingdom. So as difficult as that is, it's worth doing it. And that the teaching may not be reviled. The teaching is our Christian faith, our Christian profession. A rebellious slave doesn't coincide with the fact of the Christian faith is one, where we are peaceable and Christ like and not willing to take up swords. In fact, Jesus, in one of the great two kingdom passages in John chapter 18, he says, My servants, my subjects that I am the king over are not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world and my subjects were of this world, we would be taking up swords to fight you. But we're not because our kingdom my kingdom is not of this world and so the christian faith teaches that we are of another kingdom that i have a higher power and a higher standard that i am following i have a higher set of rules and a higher set of requirements than any master can place upon me and if i'm not willing to submit to the standards of my master how can i say that i'm submitting to the standards of god almighty And so the Christian teaching is reviled if I'm not willing to submit to even what the master tells me to do or tells us to do. So a rebellious slave brought dishonor to the name of Christ and brought dishonor to the teaching of the Christian faith, to the teaching of Christianity. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Huh, oh my! I got saved. My master's one of my brothers. I don't need. I can take it easy, cause we're all Christians. We're all, you know, sons of Father Abraham, right? Have many sons. I'm one of them, and so are you, Master. <laughs> so let's just get along. Let's just sing along. No, that's we're not to do that. They must serve all the better. We already have a very high standard, and that's the standard of honoring God in everything that we do. But it's doubly so when we are serving, or we, they would have been serving under a master who was a fellow believer in Christ. Because here, you're understanding the kingdom which you're in. The kingdom of heaven, I'm a child of God, and we're co-heirs with Christ Forever, here in this kingdom, if I'm a good Bible-believing, born-again Christian, God has called me to this station that I'm in. God has ordained and placed me exactly where he wants me. God is sovereign over everything, and he has seen fit to allow me to be a slave in this situation and my brother in Christ to be a master. For his plan and his purpose, he's ordained this. Do I trust God in that? Do I really believe what God says about himself in Scripture? Do I really believe he's in control of all things? Do I really believe this is for the best? If I don't, I'm going to be rebellious. If I don't, I'm going to push back. You see, no, you might not say it. The slave might not say it. But in essence, that's what they're saying. God, you're good, you saved me, but I know better than you in this situation. In reality, here, what he's saying is because you're both brothers, you ought to serve that one even more so, even better, because you are, uh, you, they will, who benefit by your good service, they're believers and they're beloved, teach and urge these things. Now, we have a great example of this in Scripture a great example of this so if you're in first timothy it's just a couple of pages to your right it's the little book of philemon it's like a little postcard it's not much to it and i'm assuming everybody's familiar with philemon and how that this book is written to philemon who was a brother of Paul's in Christ, and one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, had run away from his household, apparently stealing something along the way, probably to finance his getaway. And in doing so, he wound up in Rome and wound up with Paul somehow, some way, some shape, some form. And in running into Paul, Paul led him to Christ. And what this letter is, is it's a letter Paul gave to Onesimus to go back to his slave master with. Onesimus was to walk back into the slave master that he had ran away from and stolen from with this letter. Now Philemon had no obligation to receive that letter or to treat Onesimus favorably. He could have killed him if he wanted to and been absolutely okay under the law to do that. He could have not seen him and immediately had him put in prison for the rest of his life. He would have been legally okay to do that. And probably a lot of Christians in that day wouldn't have thought much of it. But here's what Paul says, okay? Verse 8 of Philemon. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also of Jesus Christ, appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed. He is useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. This, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." So if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you even owing me your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul sends Onesimus back. With the word that, hey, Philemon, you're a Christian because I preached the gospel to you. I preached the gospel to Onesimus. Receive him even as you would receive me. With all joy and with much glory in the name of Christ that he has become a Christian. Now, we are thankful that we live in a nation that no longer has slavery. In fact, slavery is... Been generally abolished throughout the world. There's still a lot. There's still pockets of it, and there are certainly still trades that go on with people. Um, we're familiar with the sex slave operation that is kind of black market all throughout the world, and we're grateful that there are measures and steps being taken to eradicate that. That's a good thing. We want to see it eradicated. It's a good thing that slavery ended. We're glad that the kingdom of God influenced Christians enough to stand up finally and say, no, we're not going to have this practice continue anymore. So what do we do with a passage like this? How does this apply to us here today? Well, to kingdom wise, it's not difficult to see how. Now, I am no longer a bond slave. I I work for and an employee of a organization a corporation and I work for them and so what I want to do is I want to take these very same principles and I want to apply them to the work that I am currently employed in so I, I want to honor the person who owns the company and the boss of my company I've tried to do this throughout my life as a Christian and every business that I worked in so that the name of God and the teaching of Jesus Christ wouldn't be reviled. I wanted to be a good employee in this kingdom so that the principles of the other kingdom that I'm greatly obligated to is met out and God is glorified, that I'm able to share the truth of the gospel, that I'm able to share the truths of the Christian faith because I am living with my mind set on the heavenly kingdom all the while I live in this earthly kingdom. And now I find myself in the wonderful position of actually working for a believer. So here, this passage, actually, I can apply it doubly to my life. We can't all do that, but we are still all obligated, I think, to work and to serve those who employ us in a way that brings glory and honor to God and doesn't bring disgrace on the teaching of Jesus Christ and on our profession of faith. So I shouldn't be disrespectful on the grounds that my boss is a believer. In fact, I should all the more be grateful, and I am, and I do pray for him and his family regularly. And so what I want to do is I want to be grateful that God has blessed him and has honored him with giving him this particular business in this kingdom. This kingdom here, on this earth. But we are both members of the eternal kingdom. We both have our citizenship there. And so while I live in this kingdom, I function in this kingdom, I still look to the heavenly kingdom to give me instruction and give me principles on how to live in this kingdom. So I... Live in two kingdoms. We as Christians, we live in these two distinct kingdoms. Now, he's going to go on here in three through five, and let's go through these real quick. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, a different doctrine than this two kingdoms kind of doctrine, they're overemphasizing one aspect or underemphasizing one aspect. They're conflating the two kingdoms, or they're somehow completely flattening them all out If they teach something different, it doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. You see, the best way to live a godly life is to understand that we live in the kingdom of heaven while we're still here on this earth. So we're trying to seek heavenly principles to live here. There's no higher standard. It's the best standard to live by. That's the greatest standard to live by. So I allow the kingdom principles to inform how I live here, even though this world is passing away. It's dark. It hates us. It's all of the things that we see that this world is. So... When these people come along and they teach different doctrines that don't accord with godliness, we need to reject it. We know that they're puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. A great example of this would be the word of faith preachers, right? It is an over-realized eschatology. They're saying that we deserve all of the material benefits because we are children of the king. And the king wants the best for his children. So what we need to do is just name it, claim it, and take it. Now, that's completely foreign from verses 1 and 2, isn't it? (laughs) I don't know how a Word of Faith preacher preaches through verses 1 and 2. I'd love to hear that someday, but I doubt I ever will, to be perfectly honest. Because they are trying to seek something that is actually promised to us in the kingdom to come, not the here and now. So we can easily see... This person who's taking the kingdom of heaven and trying to bring it down to earth is puffed up with conceit and doesn't understand the things that they're saying. These people who contradict this teaching, they have a craving for controversy. They're quarreling about words, being nitpicky, which produces envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction, among whom are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Boy, you can picture that person clearly, the person who is going to have this kind of misunderstanding and trying to conflate kingdoms and try to get things now that aren't promised to us now man they're going to slander their constant friction among people <laughs> they bring no small difficulty into the church There are tears within the church And they're growing up right alongside us, and we can't remove them ourselves. Someday God will do that, but we need to avoid those who teach differently than this. Well, I think I have to stop there. There's no way I'm going to get into the next section. We'll deal with that uh, in a couple of weeks. Lord, we thank you for... This clear instruction, and although it's just one application of the two kingdom principle, Lord, we pray that you would help us to take this understanding and see it applied in all areas of our life so that not only as employees, but as fathers and mothers and children and good neighbors and people who are consumers and people who live in this world, drivers on these roads and the like, Lord, that we would all be motivated in living after the kingdom of heaven. That we would see this principle of living in these two distinct kingdoms as our guiding force and our helpful way to understand how I'm to be a Christian even in this dark and fallen world. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth even as it is in heaven, Lord. And we look forward to that day where you return. And you do establish your rule and reign here for all eternity. Lord, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.